We're going to go to Luke 11 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, open it up. Luke chapter 11. We're going to start at verse 37. Luke 11, verse 37. I'm going to pray for us and we're going to get stuck into the Word of God. So let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your abundant goodness to us. We rejoice in your blessing. We thank you that you have loved us. You've lavished your love upon us in the gospel. We thank you for Jesus. We pray, Father, this morning in the heat that you'd help us to concentrate, fill us with your spirit, help us to know where you want us to change. Remind us afresh of the gospel this morning, Father. We pray that you would transform us, send us out of here, your people, your church, on mission to this city. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke 11, starting at verse 37. It's kind of dark up here. <clears throat> while, the Pharisee, while, while Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. And so he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give his arms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. But woe to you, Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. And one of the lawyers said to him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. You yourselves do not touch the burden with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you built their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering." And as he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something that he might say. You know, the uh, old saying, um, never judge a book by its cover, kind of came fairly true for me recently. I don't know if you listen to Triple J, you should. It's the only good radio station, um, <clears throat> in my opinion. Anyway, uh, Triple J has a, a newsreader called Naz Campanello, and... Um, she always messes up when she's reading the news. I remember driving the car going, why can't Triple J hire people that can read? I mean, it's not that hard to read, right? All you need to do is look at the page and read, and surely they practice. And, and then I saw this thing on Facebook. I don't know if you saw it like just last week. She's blind, and she, she doesn't read the news. She listens to it through an auto-cued text reader, so it's not even like a normal voice. It's like Siri talking in her ear, and she reads the news. I'm like, oh, my goodness been so judgmental to this poor girl who is blind, I'm like, I take it all back. I was like repenting and apologizing to her, even though she would never hear me, but you never judge a book by its cover. 
Maybe you've, done, maybe you've done this the noble way, on the flip side. I don't know about you, what you look for or have looked for in the past in a partner or potential life partner. But my guess is for you, it didn't work like this. They're hot, that'll do, right? It probably didn't work like that. You probably had some other form of criteria and category in your decision, like a conversation would be nice personality would be, it would be good. There needs to be some form of connection and chemistry in, in this relationship, right? You, you didn't just decide they're hot. Why? Because the outside is not all that matters. You know, the outside, the external is going to fade. Beauty is fleeting, right? Perfectly toned, tanked and sculpted pectoral muscles will soon become saggy man boobs and not all that attractive. And so, We know that, right? And so we look for things more than just the outside and the external. We look for things inside. We look for people's personality, their character, who they are as a person on the inside. And that is what attracts us to people. And yet, so often, I feel the case is that we spend so much of our time trying to justify ourselves or or seek the approval of others based on external things. We do that with the clothes that we wear, the things we put on Facebook, the people we hang out with, all of that, trying to build a sense of approval, maybe in the eyes of others, or maybe even approval for yourself. You know, one of the lessons I learned working in ministry in the western suburbs for the last 10 years, I was a youth pastor living in Mount Druitt, working at a church in Rudy Hill. Uh, I learned so many wonderful things out there, but one of the things I learned about working class Westie culture is this, it's raw. It's raw and it's honest. And so I, I would rock up to the church and um, have these conversations with people and they would just tell me their problems just straight out. First time I met them, these are all my problems. My marriage is a mess. My kids are off the rails. And I'd be like, I only just met you. But what I realized was, that's not such a bad thing. Because the culture I'd come from, which was the, the, the pristine hills district where everyone pretends that their lives are awesome, where no one ever shares their problems is no better. Our pastor Ray said to us, um, he said, you know what, in Westie culture, in working class culture, you find out about a marriage problem probably about six months before the divorce happens. He says, all of my pastor's buddies who work in more affluent areas, they find out about marriage problems two weeks after the divorce has taken place because everyone's pretending that their life is awesome and that it all just falls apart. We're concerned about the heart. The outside has, it matters. And as we see in the passage that we just read to us, Jesus will relentlessly pursue the heart. Jesus has this kind of inside-out priority for people. And so let's have a look at verse 37. This is what he says. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. It's not a bad request. It's probably a request of fellowship and friendship. He's opening his house. You wouldn't do that to people you wouldn't want to naturally hang out with. And so this is a gesture towards Jesus, a kind gesture, and one that almost approves of some of his teaching. And potentially, the last bracket of teaching where Jesus has spoken about the darkness and the light, the Pharisees are like, yes, we like that. Let's get this guy over and have a bit of a chat. And so they invite him over to dine with him. The Pharisee was astonished, verse 38, to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And now the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but on the inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools, did not he who make the outside make the inside also? 
The first century culture has a lot of rules around hospitality, and the number one rule is that you respect the host. When someone invites you to their house for a meal, you respect the host. And Jesus demolishes that first rule because he gets there and as he walks through the door, chances are there's a servant there with a big jar of water and a cloth and Jesus says, no thanks, I'm alright. And he just walks in, sits at the table, sorry, probably lays at the table and begins to eat. And the Pharisee's like, his jaw is gaping, he's got no poker face and Jesus begins to call him. He begins to call him. Now this law about hand washing, it's not actually in the law of God. But there, there is no verse in the Old Testament that says, before you eat, you must wash your hands. It's not about hygiene. This is about religion and ceremony for these Pharisees. And so they use this kind of idea of hand washing almost as a bit of a litmus test for someone's devotion to God. So when Jesus comes in and doesn't wash hands, they're astonished, they're shocked that someone would break their customs in their culture. What the Pharisees did was they added this law to a bunch of other laws. It, it, you see it happening in the Old Testament, particularly at the Day of Atonement, where the high priest goes into the temple and offers sacrifice once a year for all the people. He performs a, a washing ritual. And so they take that and they say, yep, that needs to happen all of the time. Every time you come in from the marketplace, you wash just like the high priest would. But God never told him to do that. The Pharisees put that law on Jesus. And Jesus says this, verse 39, Here's my problem. You cleanse the outside, the inside of the cup, the inside of the dish is filthy. It's filthy dirty, full of greed and wickedness. You know, I hate it when you put the dishwasher on, it finishes, you turn it off, take the coffee cups out, they're dry because you've got some rinseade in there and you put it in the cupboard and then the next day you come to make a coffee and you turn the cup over and it's dirty on the inside. I hate that. Like, this cup is unusable. It's got to go back in the dishwasher. First, I've got to rinse it before it goes in the dishwasher to make sure it's clean. No one wants to use a dirty cup on the inside. Jesus says, you know what? Your preoccupation with the external is like a dirty cup. They should be focused on, on internal things, on the heart, and yet their obsession with religious observance means that they overlook the heart. They neglect the heart. They know their Bibles, they say really long prayers, they raise their hands in worship and their hearts are full of greed and wickedness. The first uh, motorbike I bought was a really cool little Yamaha Virago 250. It's a cool little bike. It's actually the same bike that Josh has now except it looks nothing like Josh's because he's got an angle grinder out and just chopped it all to pieces and sprayed it all black. But I went and looked at this bike and it looked great. It was black which is cool if you're going to ride a bike, it's got to be black. And it had like grey prints with a gold pinstripe around the outside. It looked really cool. And I didn't know heaps about motorbike motors and it, it rode. I was like, it moves, it looks good, I'm going to buy this bike. And I bought it. The only problem was when I drained the oil, it was like thick and sludgy and dirty. The engine had not been maintained. And after a while, I just blew the motor up. I was riding down the freeway, the rings went, the whole, the whole motor just blew up. Great looking bike, but the bit that counted, the engine, the heart of the bike, useless, damaged, broken. Jesus says, you know what, you guys obsess about external observance and it's foolish. It's dumb. You know why it's dumb? Because the God who made the outside made the inside also. God cares about the inside, not just your behavior, not just the externals. 
Jesus says, you know, you're so worried about whether or not I've washed my hands when in fact you ought to be worried about your hearts and where they're at. This is his solution for the Pharisees. Verse 41 says this, But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything else is clean for you. What Jesus is saying here in, a, in an idiomatic kind of way is focus on the inside. Give attention to the heart. Begin there and that will work out and sort the rest of the outside out. But we begin with the heart. The worship that Jesus desires is not just some external moralistic behavior modification program that is completely divorced from any affection for God, divorced from any sense of heart. Jesus has a priority and it is an inside-out transformation. You know, there's an error when you focus on either of those two things in isolation. If you just focus on the heart or you just focus on behavior, it can lead to error. The first error is legalism. Legalism says, you know what, the heart doesn't really matter as long as you've got the behaviors right, as long as you've got all the external stuff sorted. It doesn't really matter what's in the heart. The ends justify the means. But the other error that just focuses on the external is what we call license. And it says, well, the only thing that matters is the heart. And it doesn't really matter about my body and what I do as long as my heart's right, as long as my heart's in the right place. And Jesus says, you know what? Both of those are wrong. That's not an either or. God created you. He owns every corner of you, your heart, your mind, your body. That's why he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, every fiber of your being. And so Jesus has a real problem with this external approach to worship. He's got six problems with it that he lists in this passage, actually. He finds it completely hypocritical, full of pride. It's actually dead. They're merciless. They silence God and they suppress the truth. And they come in the form of six woes that he delivers to the Pharisees and the lawyers. Now, when Jesus says woe, it's not like whoa. It's kind of like, it's almost like a warning tinged with pity. That's what woe is. It's a warning tinged with this sense of almost feeling sorry for these guys because of what lies ahead for their religious framework. And so he begins with the Pharisees in verse 42. He says, you know what, I can't stand your hypocrisy. This is what it says. Verse 42. But woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So the first problem that Jesus has is it's hypocritical. They obsess over the minute details of their generosity and their giving and they neglect these really big ones. They tithe their spice rack mint and rue and herbs. It's a garnish, right? They're tithing their garnishes. This, this is not their grain, their wheat, their barley. And, you know, this is just, you know, like take the master foods jar out and sprinkle a bit into a bag and take it to the tent. That's what they're doing. I guess it'd be a bit like, you know, you figure out what 10% of your, uh, the interest you earn on your everyday savings account. You know how you get like $2.16 interest in the, in the year, in your everyday savings account, it's like woeful. It's like, yeah, I've been giving to God generously all year, but ah, oh, my savings account. What's 10% of $2.16? I think it's 21.6 cents. It's actually probably not. The accountants are going to crucify me. That's why they look after the money, not me. But, and you give that to the church, round it up because you'd be generous, 25 cents, right? 
That's what they're doing here. Getting real deep on their giving. They've got the rules nailed. But they've neglected to love people and they've failed to love God. The Pharisee says, look how much I love God. Look how deep I go in my giving, my generosity. And Jesus says, well, you, you know what? You may be giving of your, your spice rack and your garnish, but you've, you've neglected the need of the widow, of the foreigner, of the alien, of the poor. You notice there it's not an either or for Jesus. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. It's a both and. You give of everything to God and you care for the poor, the alien, the stranger, the widow, the poor. It's a both and. So Jesus cannot stand, firstly, their hypocritical worship. But secondly, he can't stand their pride. And this is the second issue. Look at verse 43. He says, Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Now the best seat in the synagogue was actually the seat right up the front that faced the congregation. So imagine a seat right here. The Pharisees was all, were all fighting over that seat or that pew that would sit right up the front. And they'd all sit there so that everyone could see them sitting in the front seat, the seat of honor, the seat of privilege. And everyone would know that these guys are important because they got the best seat in the house. They love those seats. Jesus has a problem with that because their hearts just love the attention a little bit too much. Just on a completely unrelated side note, if we're going to be a church that is willing to do whatever it takes to see people come to know Jesus, what seats do we sit in? We sit in the worst seats. We sit in the front row, right? Now, why is the front row the worst seat? Because when you come into a church and you've come into the church for the first time and all of the people are sitting up the back and you've got to do that awkward walk all the way down the front, you think, oh, everyone's looking at me and did I dress appropriately? And, right? So if we love people, we'll sit right up the front and give them the best seats when they come to church, right? Anyway, completely unrelated, unrelated side point. These guys love to sit in the prominent seats where everyone noticed where they were sitting. They also loved the greetings in the marketplace. They loved to go out with their buddies in their cool dress and they loved people greeting them. This isn't a kind of like go to the shop and it's like, oh, hey mate, how you doing? And keep going, right? This is, they loved it when people stopped and asked for a selfie. They loved it when they had these elaborate greetings and stories that people told them and Jesus says, you know what? All of that does is just fulfill your sense of importance Stroke your ego. You guys are just for show. It's all about the externals. Religion that puts self at center completely misses the point. That's God's place. That's where he deserves to be. Jesus cannot stand their pride and their hypocrisy. And thirdly, he says this form of religion is dead. Have a look at what it says, verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. In Numbers chapter 19, it says that if you walk over a grave, then you are unclean for seven days and you need to perform a ritual of cleansing, washing with water twice, offering a sacrifice so that you would be spiritually clean so you go to the temple and worship. And so in Israel, all of the graves and cemeteries were clearly marked so that no one made the mistake of accidentally defiling themselves and then defiling the temple. And what Jesus is saying is that you guys are like unmarked graves. People walk over you and without even knowing it, they're defiled, they're corrupt, they're unfit for worship. They're kind of like 
landmines of spiritual death, these Pharisees. They lead people towards impurity and unrighteousness. It's ironic, isn't it? The very thing that the Pharisees prided themselves on, right? Being pure, being able to do the law is the very thing that Jesus condemns them on. You lead people towards impurity. And it's total ignorance. They do not even know they do it. So Jesus has a problem. Hypocritical, proud, and dead. Now I love this next bit because the lawyers and the Pharisees are buddies. They kind of sit together on the Jewish ruling council called the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and the relationship works a bit like this. The Pharisees are kind of like the police. They enforce the law. You go around and watch people and make sure people are doing the right thing. Because the lawyers are kind of like the judges and the QCs. They, they interpret the law and, and hand it down to be enforced by the Pharisees. And so this lawyer comes to Jesus and he kind of throws himself in the mix as well. Verse 45, I love this bit. This is what he says. One of the lawyers asked him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And Jesus said, Oh, I'm so sorry I hurt your feelings. No, he didn't. What did he say? Woe to you lawyers also, right? Straight in. It's interesting that Jesus deserves, reserves the harshest and toughest criticism for religious people, and in particular for religious leaders. And the reason is, is that they claim to represent God and lead God's people, and they're leading God's people astray. I mean, they should have learned from Ezekiel 37, where God said, you false shepherds of Israel, I will judge you and I myself will lead my people. They should have read that and counter-checked, right? But they didn't. And so Jesus comes and almost fulfills that prophecy. You false shepherds of Israel, you lead the people astray. And so he's harsh with these guys because they're leading the flock in the wrong direction away from God rather than to him. His problem with the, Pharisees, with the, the lawyers is this. Firstly, they're merciless. Have a look at verse 46. And Jesus said, Woe to you lawyers also, for you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. The lawyers added rules about the rules about the rules about the rules, and they, they put this like little rule hedge around the law of God. In fact, in the Mishnah, which is the Jewish record of the Pharisees' oral tradition, the oral laws that they had, um, it says, get this, that it's more important to obey the lawyers than it is the actual law of God. And their justification, their logic behind that was the lawyers interpret the law and they make it easy to understand. And so if you disobey that, it's worse than actually disobeying this, which is hard to understand. That's kind of their logic. It's messed up, but that was their logic. Let me give you an example of what they did. In um, Jeremiah 17, 21, there's a law about the Sabbath, about not working on the Sabbath, and a particular law about carrying stuff. And this is, it says in Jeremiah 17, you shall not carry a burden, that is a load. You shall not carry a burden in your right hand or your left hand, right hand or your left hand, on your shoulder or in your bosom, which I, I assume kind of means carrying a load like that. And so the Pharisees, the lawyers, read that law that came from God and said, right, we need to fix this up a bit. And so what they said was, you cannot carry a load, a burden, on any of those. Sorry, let me backtrack a bit. All God said was, do not carry a load. Right, that's all he said. Do not carry a burden on the Sabbath. The Pharisees 
decided that they needed to put some meat onto that. And so they said, you cannot carry the burden right or left hand, shoulder or bosom, but you can carry it on the back of your hand. You can carry it in your ear, on your hair, on your foot, or just tucked in the corner of your shirt. So you can't carry a load on the Sabbath is what God said. And then they just added all these rules to what God had already said. Now, you imagine them doing that to all 613 commandments that God gave in, in, the, in the law. I mean, it's just overwhelming. When they make 10 laws out of one, you've got 60,000 laws all of a sudden, and it's oppressive. It's oppressive. Jesus says, you know, the more laws you create, you're just, you're just crushing people and you're not helping them. You're not lifting a finger at all to help these people. You're not making it easier. You're making it harder for them to worship me. And chances are the lawyers weren't even living by these laws themselves. So not only is it just merciless, it's also completely hypocritical. I remember um, sitting in a pastoral meeting with my old pastor, Ray, and uh, I've got so much respect for Ray. I've learned so much from him. I remember sitting in this pastoral conversation, myself and a, a, another um, trainee pastor, and he'd been sharing the gospel with a friend of his, a couple, <clears throat> and they'd come to faith. But they'd been living together for years, been in a, a de facto relationship, owned a house together or were renting a house together, and um, weren't married, and they'd been sleeping together. And they both became Christians, and he came to Ray and he said, what do I do about this? And he said, well, you know, what, what do you think? He said, well... I guess we need to tell them about this new sexual ethic that they have once they've come to Christ. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, but it's hard. I mean, it's going to be hard for them. You know, maybe one of them needs to move out of their home and live separately for a bit. And maybe we should encourage them towards marriage. And I mean, he's not saying tomorrow. This is, you know, a process. And, um, and the guy was kind of balking at it. He's like, I think it's too hard. I don't think we should tell him to do anything. And Ray said, well, that's not the solution, just to ditch, ditch the commandments of God. He said, the solution is this. I've got three kids. I'll move one of my daughters into her sister's room. They can share a room. And one of them can come and live with me. And we'll put them up until such a point where they're engaged and married and want to move forward. And, and um, see what he did there? Here is what we, the requirement is. But we don't just tell people what to do and let them drown and sink in it. We help them do it. We help them do it. We need to be a church that's not just about preaching the importance of godliness that's required, but a church that talks so much about the grace that motivates that and a church that is a community of people that helps us do that. We don't just tell people what to do. We help people do it. We model to people what to do. So Jesus cannot stand their merciless approach to the law and the weight that it puts on people's lives. Fifthly, he cannot stand the fact that they muzzle God. This is what it says in verse 47. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. For you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them, and you build their tombs. It's kind of what's happening in these verses here. The, the lawyers thought that they honored the prophets by building these ornate monuments on top of the graves of the dead prophets. And Jesus is saying, in fact, what you're doing there is consenting with your forefathers who killed them. You silence God because God sent prophet after prophet after prophet and your crew put them to death time and time and time and time again. And in fact, Jesus is almost speaking prophetically about what this very group of people will do to him. Falsely accuse him, try him and crucify him and put him to death. 
And Jesus says, you know what, you lawyers are so busy interpreting the word of God in your way, you've actually muzzled God. In John 5, Jesus says, you spend all this time searching the scriptures because you think that by them you'll find life. And you've missed the point because I am the point. Jesus is the point of the scriptures. And these people overlook the one that God had sent, the final prophet. They muzzle God. Finally, sixthly, they suppress the truth. This is what it says, verse 52. <clears throat> Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. The lawyers loved to be the only people who could interpret the law. They wanted to do it. They thought this is a, an important job, and so it needs to be done by uh, specifically trained and qualified people who have been trained. They would have done a degree in law to be able to interpret the law of God. And so they make it virtually impossible for the average worshipper to come to the Scriptures and read it and interpret it for themselves. And so rather than leading people into truth like they should, they lead people away from truth. Rather than revealing the truth, they conceal it. Think of the example of the church in the 15th century around the time of Reformation when most people were illiterate in the language that they spoke, couldn't read or write it. And yet... The scriptures were all written in Latin. And so in order to read the scriptures for yourself, you needed to have um, done a degree, learning how to speak a dead language, Latin. And then a guy called uh, Tyndale, William Tyndale, is that his name? William Tyndale, someone Tyndale, wrote, wrote Tyndale's Bible. He came along and he translated from the Greek and Hebrew originally, from the original language, he translated it into the language that people could speak and read for themselves and the church killed him because they wanted to keep the balance of power, keep the key to knowledge to themselves so that they could dispense and interpret it rather than the people reading it for themselves and understanding. And again, there's irony here. The very things that the lawyers prided themselves on, being able to interpret and teach the law, Jesus calls them on. And he says, you know what? You suppress the truth. You lead people away from truth. You conceal it. You take away the key to understanding. Now, what's the reaction of these religious guys? Six shots that Jesus has fired. And their reaction is not to be broken over their sin and repent and cry out to God. No, no, they hide and wait in ambush to try and catch Jesus in his words so that they can kill him for what he said. The lawyers and Pharisees who spent all of their time looking for ways to criticize people. They don't take too kindly criticism when it comes their way, do they? Pharisees are concerned with spice racks and special seats. The lawyers are concerned about the rules, about the rules, about the rules. And Jesus comes and he quotes Isaiah. He says, you know what, God, these people, they worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus is concerned about the heart. He's relentlessly pursuing the heart throughout the book of Luke. That's what you see him doing, going after the heart time and time and time again. When I was a young um, youth leader, my goal for youth ministry and for leading the, the group of boys that God had entrusted to me was that they would, that I would develop mature young men. That was my goal. Develop mature young men. It's a good goal, right? The problem was my execution of that goal. 
my execution or my definition of maturity was that they had heaps of Bible knowledge and they weren't dating a non-Christian, they were reading their Bible every day and they weren't getting drunk at parties. Mature Christian, right? Head full of knowledge and a couple of categories and tick, done. And I wanted to set a really good example of that myself. And so I read my Bible every day and tried to be really godly and I would set an example and I never shared any of my struggles, never shared any of my sin. And in the end, they just thought I was perfect. They thought I was Jesus, never had any problems. And so they couldn't come to me with their issues, pretending that the outside was all good. When really what was happening in my heart was a bunch of pride and a heap of issues. And so my goal for ministry is not that we just have this external form of people who do good things. My goal for ministry at Anchor, my goal for you is that we would capture your heart with the gospel. That we would capture your heart. That's what we're after here. I had a mum come up to me at my last church where I was a youth pastor and she said to me, look, I've been on Facebook and I noticed one of the girls in year 10 has been writing these comments on Facebook. Uh, she's been using some expletives and, and some filthy language. I said, yeah, I've seen a bit of it. She said, well, can you talk to her and tell her to stop? I said, nah, I'm not going to do it. I mean, apart from the fact that her daughter was no angel, I said, you know what happens when you tell kids, don't stop posting that on Facebook? They block you so you can't see it. They just keep doing it anyway, and you're ignorant of what's happening. I said, you know, I'm not going to just try and get her to modify her behavior. What we're going to do is we're going to pursue her heart. We're going to pursue her affection for Jesus. And when we get that bit, the Facebook will change. And not just the Facebook, everything else in her life will change. Pursue the heart. In fact, if you just tell people to modify the behavior, they'll do it. And then you'll never really know what the heart is. All of the comments on Facebook told me exactly where this girl was in her faith. And so I said, I'm not going to tell her to stop. But we're going to preach the gospel and pursue our affection for Jesus. That's what we'll do. That's what we're on about at Anchor, pursuing people's hearts. You know, Jesus came and he said to people, your righteousness must surpass that of the Pharisees. You must be more righteous than the Pharisees. And for the ordinary, everyday Jew living in Jerusalem, that was a shock. They're like, how, how will we do that? The Pharisees are impeccable. They never put a foot wrong. How could I possibly be better than the Pharisees? And Jesus said, well, that's kind of the point. You can't. So you need to throw yourself upon my mercy and my righteousness. You need a righteousness outside of yourself. You need a transformation from the inside out. And that's exactly what Jesus gives us, is it not? He deals with the problem of our sin, not from the external, but from the internal. He dies for it. And then he gives us the Holy Spirit and he regenerates our dead hearts, those hearts of stone, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. That's why Jesus, in the end, hates religion. You know, religion is, this is the definition of religion. Religion says, I obey God, therefore God accepts me. That's what religion is. I obey God, I do all these things, I tick all the boxes. Once I've fulfilled my duty, then I'm acceptable to God. Jesus can't stand that. You know why? The problem with that is that it, it leads itself to one of two directions. The first is pride, just like the Pharisees. 
Look at all of these things that I have done. Smug, tick, proud, or it leads to despair. I can't do it. I'm not good enough. Woe is me. It's the problem that Jesus has with religion. I obey God, therefore I'm acceptable. Jesus says it doesn't work like that. It's that you're accepted by God on the basis of what Jesus has done. Therefore, my life is his, everything, every corner of it. You know, in the end, we're all trying to justify ourselves in some way, externally. We, we all do it, consciously or subconsciously. We're pretending that our lives are better than they really are. I mean, there's now a reaction to um, all of these shameless selfies that, that go up. It's called the ugly selfie, right? Where you take a photo of yourself and it's the ugliest face you can put. It's a reaction to this sort of cosmetic view of life that gets posted online all the time. Because we know that somehow that's, that's just the best bit of your life that you put up. We don't really see the struggles. We don't really see the problems. And so people just roll through life pretending that it's awesome. Aussies are pretty laid back culturally. And I think it's a, it's a nice part of our culture that we're laid back. It makes us friendly, it makes us approachable, but it doesn't work when it comes to God. We cannot come to God and say, she'll be right, she'll be right, figure it out in the end, we'll, we'll balance it out, it's all good. It doesn't work like that with God. Because God does not judge us based on our moral performance. God looks at the heart. You know, if he judged us on moral performance, the Pharisees would be in, right? They would be in with badges and bells. And, I mean, they would... He doesn't do that. He looks at the heart. And that's why we need Jesus. Because our hearts are broken and black and hard. And we need him to regenerate our hearts. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning... We all need to stop living as if our performance is what earns God's approval. And you hear that and you think, yeah, yeah, I know that. But how quickly, how often do we point to our track record and say, God, look at that. Look what I did there. Look how much I've given. Look how much I've served. Look, look God, at my track record. How quickly do we do that? How quickly do we, we not pray because we feel guilty about our sin? Oh, I need to sort myself out before I start praying again before I do my devotions I'll, I'll just do a couple of works and earn a bit of approval and then, then I can go to God and pray right? that betrays a misunderstanding of the gospel we so quickly point to our track record rather than pointing to Jesus and saying God I messed up but look what Jesus did look what he did in my place if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning then I, <clears throat> I want to challenge you I want to challenge you to think about this. The, the thing that you do that seeks to build your sense of worth and value and, and approval, be, be that from God or from other people, does, I mean, does that really work? Does it work? Is it working for you? It certainly didn't feel like it was working for me growing up. And you might be able to fool people out there with the externals, but I wonder if you can fool yourself. Because with that model, you've got to live with yourself, with your own sin and, and your own understanding that there is a massive discontinuity between what's out there and what's really in here. I think Jesus is the solution. New heart, new affections, completely new person.
That's the gospel. So what we love preaching and hearing about at Anchor and celebrating as well. And so we're going to do that right now. We're going to celebrate the gospel. Up the front here, we've got two stations with some bread and some grape juice. And we invite you to reflect on the gospel, worship God out of a thankful heart, come forward, dip the bread into the grape juice, eat it and remember what Jesus has done for you. We invite the band up. We're going to respond in praise and worship of our great God. Let me pray. Our Father God, we thank you. We thank you for Jesus who makes our hearts new. Father, we know that so often we, we just default back into pointing to our track record and seeking to justify ourselves based on what we do to fix up our behavior in the externals when we're, what we really need is Jesus. Lord, where we find hypocrisy and pride and death, where we seek to muzzle the truth and suppress it. And pray that you would forgive and restore. Lead us towards righteousness. We thank you for Jesus, our Savior, our Rescuer. Pray that you would transform us by your Spirit. Make us more like him. We ask it in his strong and powerful name. And we surrender our lives to you now. Amen.